Hello and welcome to another episode of the Boss Podcast. This is episode 93. I am Kirk Bailey and this week we take a look at switching from consulting to a product-led business with Meet Edgar's Laura Roder. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Almost everyone running a consulting, training or agency business, however successful, will admit that at some point they wish they could run a product business. So why don't they? Laura decided to make the move a couple of years ago. Organically funded, the new business reached 100,000 MRR within a year and continues to grow. She shares some of her experiences changing her business and some of the things that have propelled the growth of Meet Edgar. Happy listening. All right, so this talk is about how I transitioned. How I transitioned from a totally different business model in the past three years from a training business to a software business. And I put these pictures up as kind of the before and after. Uh, so the picture on the left is me in 2009 speaking at an event uh, in New York City. Hot tip, a bunch of like janky red folding chairs empty behind the speaker is not really the most professional look uh, for photos. Uh, but I chose this photo because it really represented to me how my business felt at the time, which is I felt pretty alone in my business, and I felt solely responsible for driving everything. This was early, I didn't have any employees, I had a few uh, contractors that I worked with sometimes, so I wasn't really totally alone, but I was alone in making all the decisions for my business. Whenever we you know, wanted to make more money, I would have to come up with some sort of idea as to how that would happen. If I were to step away from the business, the whole thing would fall apart. And then on the right here is the after, and uh, this is our Meet Edgar team. Just about a month ago in Denver, we're a totally distributed team, so we had a meetup in Denver. And what I love about this photo is that I'm one of many, which is how my business feels now. It doesn't feel like it's me having to do everything, it's me having to drive everything. I'm one person on this team of 18 people, and we're all working together towards this common goal, which, which feels really amazing. So for context, from 2009 to 2015, I ran a social media marketing training company. So what that means is I created information products, video courses that taught entrepreneurs how to market with social media. So it wasn't uh, a one-on-one -on -one consulting model. I wasn't going into people's offices and training them. It was a scaled online business doing training. Uh, and it was pretty successful. You know, It was a, a seven-figure business by the end. Uh, but there were a few things that I did not love about the business model. So the first thing is that I was very central to the business. So I was the talent, I was the trainer, the website's like, I'm Laura, learn from me, it's fun. Uh, that, was, that was the whole model. So there were inherent scaling limits to that model, right? I mean, you can have a person with a larger business around them, obviously like Oprah, Martha Stewart, but it's, it's not as easy as scaling, let's say, a software business. And I was stuck doing some work that I didn't love because I had built this business around me as the thought leader. When other people did the training, people really weren't as interested. That was kind of the draw of the business. And I wasn't really that interested in learning 
uh, keeping up with you know, all the latest Facebook algorithm updates. Now I get to read our Meet Edgar blog and just read about them there. I don't have to research them myself. So I didn't really love that work. And I had always wanted to do a SaaS company in particular. Uh, I actually remember looking at the website for this conference in particular being like, I wish I had a software business. That seems so cool, but like, I can't spend thousands of dollars because I don't even have a software business yet, so I guess I won't go. Um, but I was always intrigued by the business model. You guys know how it is, right? Reoccurring. It's just like passive revenue that comes in forever. You don't have to do anything. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's what I wanted. Um, but there were a few problems to my plan. Uh, number one, I didn't and don't know how to code. Um, I didn't know anything about how to design a software product. I had zero experience working in or around software in any capacity. Like, I had never you know, cleaned the floors of a software business. I, I had done nothing. So I really didn't know anything about software aside from using software. So I didn't really know how this was going to pan out. You know, I knew there are different ways that you can like hire a technical team or like find a technical co-founder, but I'm like, That's, that stuff sounds really hard. Instead, what happened is I met this guy in the picture. So the guy in the front, there's another guy in the back. I don't know his name, but he did a really great job <laughs> rowing that boat for us. Um, the guy in the front is my husband, Chris. Let me tell you what's really sexy about Chris. He's a Ruby on Rails developer, which, <laughs> yeah, yeah, should be here. If you're a marketer like me, that's very appealing. Uh, <laughs> but that wasn't you know, really the reason why I fell in love with Chris. But anyway, I met Chris. Uh, we got married. And obviously, him being a Ruby on Rails developer, me being like the marketing business side, we're like, huh, this is cool. We spend a lot of time talking about startups. Maybe at some point, we can do something together. And it took actually a while before that happened. You know, At the time, I was very full time running my training business. It was going well. Uh, he was doing various freelance projects. He had actually founded um, a social media software a while ago that really hadn't ended up going anywhere, but he had a lot of relevant experience, obviously. So it took us about two years uh, before we were like, you know what, we're, we're going to do this. Like, I really want to do software. You're obviously the person to, to make it happen with. Like, let's come up with an idea. Let's create a product together. So the first big thing you have to do is find this idea. And we did this in a little bit of a different way, not the typical uh, you know, lean, lean startup way. We did not build a bunch of ideas to see which one would take off, um, which is what a lot of people do either within a company. You know, They have a little incubator, and they build a lot, or they're like, Let's just build a bunch of things and see which one takes off, which one gets traction. Uh, our way was to invalidate as much as possible before a single line of code got written. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for this. I mean, I, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you because I think this is a really good idea. I think this methodology is, is something that you should consider. There were a lot of practical reasons why we did it. I mean, one, we were both doing other projects. Uh, we weren't going to raise money, and we had never raised money before, so we didn't really know how to raise money. So we're like, we don't really have time to build a bunch of stuff that's not going to become a business. Um, but even then, we did start code on two projects before abandoning them early, partially because Chris kind of you know, likes to think through ideas by writing code. So why I'm telling you that is because this is, this is hard. You know, I recognize 
that this is hard to be so confident of an idea before you start writing code. And I have two criteria for how I know an idea is, is good enough to start writing code. The first one is, are prospects actively looking to buy a better solution to this problem? Now, you notice I put the word buy in all caps, because I think when we talk about problem solution a lot, um, there are a lot of problems that are very real problems that no one is interested in paying money for a solution. I mean, you guys probably think of these all the time. I think of these all the time. Like the other day, I was, I have a, a route to my son's preschool, and I'm always trying to like optimize the best route. So I'm like, oh, I wish I had an app that showed me exactly which street I took and how long it took. I would never pay for this, right? Like I'm into the idea. It sounds fun, but I would never actually pay for it. So my criteria is not just is this a problem, is this an active problem, but is this a problem that people are like googling, like I want to buy a solution to this. Now I should note that this is obviously not the only business model. This is not the only way. You know, this is not how Facebook was developed, right? Looking for something that people would buy. There's another way to go where you can raise money, you know, you can get a bunch of users, you can be WhatsApp and not charge anything and get sold. That's cool, that's a different route than I took, that's a different route than I'm talking about today. And the second criteria, or the second first criteria, according to this slide, is, uh, <laughs> is our solution, <laughs> they're both so important, um, is our solution better than what's out there? So this one, again, sounds super obvious, but something that I see happening a lot in the startup world is people get so hung up on the problem that they actually kind of glaze over, do we have a better solution? Um, an example of this, one of the ideas that, that we've considered is a better wiki, because our company is unsatisfied with all the wikis out there. We just use Google Docs. We don't like any of them. So we're like, OK, you know, all the wikis suck. We're going to build a better one. Here's, I don't know how to build a better wiki. It's really hard. That's why I don't like any of them. You know, but we often come to this like, oh, I see this problem. The wikis are no good. I'm going to build a better one. But you can't just throw together a better wiki. It's a really hard problem to solve. You have to have a really strong point of view of why what you've built is actually better than the alternatives. So we went through a lot of ideas you know, and validating a lot of ideas. The one that turned out to be the idea, hence meet Edgar, um, is one that was incredibly obvious, that really fell into our lap. Could say if it was a snake, it would have bit you. That's how I would describe it. Uh, so I can remember when this came about, we were living in London at the time, and I remember we were standing in our kitchen, and I was complaining to Chris about all this manual work that our company had to do around social media, uh, because we had created this process where we were optimizing, sending out your old content over and over again. So to get like a little bit into details of what Meet Edgar does, most people write a blog post, they send it out on social once or maybe a few times the week that it's live, um, and then never again. So a lot of businesses, maybe you, end up in this situation where you've spent you know, days, months, years creating this huge backlog of great content. It's not getting seen, because the tools used to not offer any easy automated way to make sure that your content's um, going out over and over again, getting clicks, driving traffic, all that good stuff. So the way that we were solving this is I had a spreadsheet with different categories, like my blog posts, um, tips and tricks, other people's blog posts, inspirational quotes, basically all the types of uh, status updates that you send to social that are evergreen, you know, that you want to repeat, not like, hey, I'm a business of software right now. Like, you don't want to obviously send that out six months later. It doesn't make any sense. I'm talking about 
here's a link to a really great post that you'll still find valuable years to come. So we had the spreadsheet um, cycling through it. So you had to copy and paste the update into your social media tool, do it over and over and over again. Images were a nightmare. If you had like a long form update went to Facebook, that was a nightmare. And so we were doing this and we were teaching people to do it uh, in this course called Social Brilliant, which if you Google Social Brilliant, you can still take the course. It's free now, still a really valuable course about social media. So people were paying just to learn this methodology and people were using this methodology and having really great results, but there was a lot of uh, manual labor involved with all the organizing and copy and pasting. So I was complaining to Chris about this and not being a programmer, I was like, it's so weird that the tools can't do this. Like, I guess it's not possible for a social media tool to store a library of social media updates. Because I, like, I just literally thought that it wasn't possible or the tools would have done it. It seemed like such an obvious idea to me. So he was saying, well, of course, of course the tools can do that. And I'm like, well, how do you know? Like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, I mean, I know, I can think off the top of my head how I could build that. And I remember he said, I could build that in a week. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> a little foreshadowing, it did not take a week. It took, <laughs> took longer than a week. Uh, but this is where the idea for Meet Edgar came from, right? We were teaching this methodology, the methodology became the software. So to go back to the criteria, are prospects actively looking to buy a better solution to this problem? I knew the answer was yes because of the competitive landscape. And I think this is kind of an interesting point because a lot of people have said this to me about Edgar. They're like, why would you launch a social media tool? Like, There's huge companies, there's very well-established companies, very well-funded companies. Uh, again, we were not raising money. We were a bootstrap company. So a lot of people thought it was crazy to go in the space that was so competitive. But to me, when I see a competitive space, it, it's proof that people are paying for the solution. Right? And I would much rather actually, from a marketing perspective, I think it's a lot easier to get people to switch than it is to educate them about this new you know, need that they may or may not be solving, they may or may not know that they have, saying, you're already paying for this tool, ours does the same thing better. You know, there's some convincing, there's some inertia that happens with tools, but at the end of the day, if you have a better solution, it's definitely possible to get people to switch. So I was very happy to have that competition. And the second number one is our solution better than what's out there? And that was also a very clear yes, because uh, there still aren't other tools that repeat your content in perpetuity, keep an organized library. The things that we were proposing to do, I knew were very useful, uh, and I knew they were better than the existing solutions. So I didn't want to build anything until I felt really, really confident that this was going to sell, that people were going to buy this. And of course, I, I'm not psychic, I don't know for sure, but to me, I'm not going to start a business. I'm not gonna start a business where I'm like, people seem sort of interested, but everyone we've talked to is like, I'm not really sure if I would actually use it or I'm pretty happy with what I have. I think a lot of times when you do customer research, you get that sort of thing where you're like, it didn't quite hit, but you know, maybe with like a little bit of tweaking, it could work. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in like, yes, I feel really good that, that people are going to buy this, which, which is hard to do and takes time. So the next phase is building the product. So we didn't purely bootstrap Meet Edgar. We didn't, we've never raised any money, but we took the profits from LKR, the training business, and put them into Edgar. And I point that out because it's, it's just a different journey than purely bootstrapping, where you're 
receiving a dollar, spending a dollar, receiving $5, spending $5. I just want to give this context because we were obviously able to grow a little faster because we had initial, initial money to put in. And if you're switching from consulting or training or whatever to software, uh, here is the core team that you need to make that happen. So, and it might be a smaller, simpler team than you think. So first, the obvious thing you need is a dev team to build the thing. Uh, in, in our case, this was six months of part-time work. Obviously, I know there's a lot of developers in this room. You know there's no answer for this. It depends on everything about your software, how complex it is. You can't just give a blanket timeline. Uh, but so you have to figure out for you what this is. It's just worth saying, I have never seen anyone just say, I'm gonna get, I, I have no experience in software, I'm gonna get an outsourced development team and just tell them what I wanna build. Um, I've never seen that work once, ever. I don't know, maybe it has at some point. Uh, you need, if you're not technical, you need a CTO, technical co-founder, whatever it is. This is your core product. Like, if you just go make a cheap version and you're not very knowledgeable about how it works and whether they did a good job, it, it's not gonna be very good. Uh, the second thing you need is hours from a designer to create um, a logo and a basic marketing site. And I use the term hours because you don't need a full-time person, you can use a freelancer, but this is just the design component, a page explaining what the thing is. Um, the slide got a little messed up. This, the don't forget this one was actually supposed to point to number three, hours from a writer for initial marketing, uh, copy for email sequences and for that landing page. This is the one that you developers in the room think that you're too good for, I don't know why, you're not, you're not doing it. Uh, but just hiring a few hours from a professional copywriter takes you from just like a product that you threw out and hope that someone would buy to you actually have some sort of marketing power behind this. You're actually you know, trying to explain what it does. You can do this yourself if you feel so compelled, but basically the point is that you wanna treat this seriously. You wanna treat this as something that you need to launch uh, just as much as the product. And if you don't know software, like me, I beg you to listen to the advice of people who do know software. Uh, just because you know how you want it to look in the end does not mean that you're good at the details of how to build it. I mean, there's lots of metaphors for this. I might be able to draw a shirt and have it kind of, you know, look in the drawing how I want, but I have no idea how it's constructed, the methodology, all that stuff. So some of my ideas for how Edgar should be executed uh, were too complex or didn't really make a lot of sense. So this is where uh, Chris was a huge part of not just you know, doing the code for the product, but really helping me architect how the product would function. You know, me saying this is the outcome we want for our users, what's the best way to make that happen? Next part, launching the product. So our plan was to have a half training and half software company. You know, we thought these will be great compliments. People will come in and learn from the training. Uh, they'll buy the software. You know, they'll buy the software and then they'll want to buy the training. That did not end up happening. Well, we'll talk more about that. Uh, but what's important about this point is this gave us a financial baseline. So at the time, my training business was doing a million a year in revenue. So looking at the software business, that was kind of the minimum. We're like, okay, if the software business isn't reaching a million a year revenue in the first year or so, and it doesn't really make sense to pursue, right? We're just gonna go for the training instead. Uh, and I would say you wanna have some sort of financial benchmark in your head, whatever, whatever that is for you to be able to gauge success. 
the most important mindset um, when launching a new business, switching to a new model, you know, being an agency that's building on a product, you are launching a new business, right? A lot of us here have built businesses. It is hard. There's a lot of moving parts. This new thing that you're launching is just as complex as the other business that you've already built and is just and it's going to take just as much time and effort and money to get going as the other business that you've already built. And this is how I see a lot of people treating software. You would not open a retail store by throwing some t-shirts on the floor and like just seeing if anyone happens to walk by your weird empty deserted storefront, pick up a t-shirt and try to figure out how to buy it. You know that that's ridiculous. But in the software world, I see a lot of people doing the build it and they will come, right? Just launch it, put it out there, maybe it'll get some traction, maybe it'll get discovered. This is, this is my harsh slide. Um, if you wait and see if it gets traction, to me, you're saying, I'm giving up. I'm not going to try to promote it. I'm not going to try to educate people about it. I'm not going to tell anyone that it exists. I'm going to wait and see if it gets traction. Um, there are a few stories out there where things magically got discovered, uh, but most products that is not going to happen just because it doesn't make sense, right? Like how is anyone going to know that your thing exists if you just, you know, put it on Product Hunt once or you put it on the App Store or whatever it is. So if you treat it as a side project, it will remain a side project. Make it a core part of your business plan. Don't just hope that it goes well. You know, again, it's just everything that you're thinking about your other business, you need to apply to your software business. With your consulting business, you're not just like, I'm gonna see if any customers show up, maybe we'll be out of business next month, maybe we won't. You know, you have a plan for how you're gonna keep the doors open, how you're gonna keep growing. You need that same plan for your software business. So here's how things went for us. We did very well. So within the first um, six months, we had 50,000 a month of MRR. This shows our uh, customer count for each month. Uh, we didn't have any kind of free plans. So these are all paying customers. So you can see that it was, you know, in the beginning, doubling every month. In June, we sent out an email to a few people, 18 paying customers, 48, 107, 234, 428. So by January, we were up to uh, a little over 1,000 paying customers. So this was successful. You know, this, this, was, this was doing well. This got traction. But in 2014, the year that we launched, 90% of our revenue still came from LKR, still came from the training business. So it wasn't as, as clear cut as you might think. We were doing well, but we still got the vast majority of our revenue from training. Uh, and that's when I decided to go all in on software. I decided to completely shut down LKR. My plan was once we reached break-even from Edgar, meaning you know once the revenue from Edgar alone um, covered the burn rate for the entire company monthly, that's when we would shut down LKR. And we were still making a million a year in revenue, very high profit margin from this business. So this, this was a big decision. This was not just like, a, eh, it's not doing very well, we'll just throw it away. This was a really big decision. This, this is why I did it, because I wanted to. You know, looking back at the reasons why I decided to make that maybe crazy call, the biggest reason, like I said, I, I wanted to be here talking to you guys. I wanted to have a software business. And after I had done it for six months, uh, I loved it just as much 
as I thought I would. It, it was a business model, it is a business model that gave me a lot more freedom away from the business than I'd had before. I just really enjoyed it. Uh, number two reason, the potential upside was much, much larger with Meet Edgar than with LKR. Like I said, LKR was a thought leader business, it was all around me. Meet Edgar is a very scalable business and a business that I can sell if I so choose. My previous business didn't really have that option. And number three, because building two businesses takes twice the time, effort, and cash, I think we all you know, know this logically, but often we have a lot of projects going on and we're not really realistic about uh, all the energy that we're going to have to put into all those projects. Running two businesses, twice as hard as running one business. And it's worth mentioning, at this time, this was not the only big pivot going on in my life. So when Meet Edgar launched, and when I made this decision about six months after launch, I did not look like I look like today, standing here in front of you. I looked a little different. I look like that. <laughs> like It makes my back hurt to look at this picture. <laughs> so I was pregnant when I launched. I mean, I, I was like real pregnant. I was pregnant when I launched. Um, we got our first customers June 2014. My son was born January 2015. So obviously this also played into my decision uh, in a lot of ways. And one of them was I was really set on having a business where I could have freedom from the business, where I could take time off, where it didn't feel like that lonely standing on stage with the haphazard red folding chairs behind me. Right? I wanted a business where I was one of a team, where the rest of the team was very capable of continuing and growing the business while I was gone. So I was very set, because I was pregnant when we launched, I knew I would be taking maternity leave, I was very set uh, right from the beginning on removing myself as that constraint, as that bottleneck. So I mean, this is still the process that I take in my business. Um, Looking at that, you know, we saw the link graphic earlier, the theory of constraints, removing the weakest link. I'm a big believer in that, and I'm always looking at myself as, as the weakest link, to be honest, right? I'm looking at where am I gumming up the process, what do I need to approve that I don't actually need to approve, what am I slowing down? So knowing that I would go on maternity leave, I just removed myself um, from everything and structured the business so that it could keep growing without me because I was going to be on maternity leave within our first year of the business. Uh, and this is a huge testament to our team and Meet Edgar. So during the three months that I was on leave, which was about six months after launch, so still very early in the business, we went from 74,000 to 110,000 monthly reoccurring revenue. I was completely gone. I was out for three months. And we had incredible results. Um, if you're paying attention, this means that we actually crossed that first annual uh, reoccurring revenue, that first million dollars in annual reoccurring revenue, and we crossed 100K in monthly reoccurring revenue. Two huge milestones, in my opinion, um, six months after lunch while I was away. So that's pretty awesome. So we made the hard decision to let LKR become messy. So this was not our team transition from one to the, the other. We did not shut down one business and open up the other. Uh, it had to be messy so that we could just stop devoting resources to it because shutting something down, closing it out in a nice, elegant way also takes time. So we we're just like, we we're just gonna go all in on Edgar. Um, it didn't look very clean, it, it still doesn't. So 
I looked up some history on this. Our first Meet Edgar blog post, December 2014. The last LKR blog, March 2015. We switched our newsletter branding to be from LKR to Edgar in May. So it wasn't this like big launch. It wasn't this clean thing. It was, it was a mess. And if you're switching business models, uh, that's likely what it's going to look like unless you have the full team on both, right, to totally close out one in this really elegant, lovely way. And, and we didn't have that. Uh, just really briefly, another thing that I'm a big believer in that allowed us to do so well without my presence, my leadership, uh, setting priorities for each quarter and, and sticking to them. So there's a lot written about this. At our company, we do three big rocks for each department for each quarter. So for you to be gone for a quarter, you know, each department has already decided what they're doing. They have the three top priorities. They do them that quarter. There's, there's not a lot that can go wrong, especially if you're a business model like ours where we're bootstrapped, uh, we're self-serve, we have only small business customers, so we don't have an you know, enterprise customer having an emergency that we have to react to. Our business is really not react. The only thing that's reactive in our business is because we're based on um, Twitter and Facebook, so we have to be a bit reactive to what they're doing. Uh, but beyond that, you know, we're very much in control of our business, which, which was by design. So by the end of 2015, this graph had totally flipped around. Um, we went from making 10% of our revenue from Edgar to making 77% of our revenue from Edgar. This was our first you know, full year of being a business. By the end of 2015, we're at 2.2 million annual recurring revenue. Here's how we did it. Uh, this is our growth chart of monthly reoccurring revenue from very early on. I don't think this one shows the very first month, but pretty close to it, and uh, up to just last month, up to August. And what's interesting about this chart to me is how even it is. So we often hear the story of the, the hockey stick, right? We were going along, and then we found this growth hack, and then like everything just took off from there. Um, that has never happened to us. We do, we've never had a hockey stick. We have no viral coefficient, another cool buzzword. We don't have that with our software. Businesses use it. We don't have a way to like insert ourselves to their communications so people don't really know that they're using it. I'm much more focused on the funnel. The, the funnel, I love the funnel. The funnel has been mentioned um, in a few talks, which I was really excited about. Uh, I'm a big fan of not worrying about one-off tricks, one-off hacks, even one-off promotions, and really focusing on the funnel. And this is a big thing I learned in my previous business, because in my last business, if we wanted to make more money, we had to come up with like a new idea, which is how I, I see a lot of software companies run. It's like, okay, we have to grow next month. You know, what, who's our, our new partner? What's our cool new feature? What's our new integration? Are we gonna have a big campaign or a big promotion? If you're not running for that next thing, your growth is going down. And I was like, I am not gonna do that. It's not sustainable. It doesn't allow me to take a three-month maternity leave. We are gonna focus on the funnel and optimize the funnel and grow that way. And there's also a lot of things that we chose not to do. Uh, I'm, such, I'm such a big believer in the power of saying no. I think saying no is one of the most underrated skills in business. We have been very, very focused. This is a small list of, especially on the marketing side, of some of the things that we don't do. We don't do integrations. Uh, we did launch a Zapier integration this year so that we could not do other integrations and just do Zapier. But by the way, out of our 6,000 users, last I checked it was like 172 
use the Zapier integration. Uh, we don't get a lot of traffic from their site or anything. So even that, probably from a business perspective, I don't know if it really mattered. Our company is just obsessed with Zapier and we wanted to use it and we thought it would be cool. That's a big reason why we launched it. Um, we don't do any kind of partnerships. Uh, we don't have an affiliate program, which I forgot to put on this list. We don't do biz dev. Here's the truth. I'm not sure exactly what biz dev is. Every time I go to San Francisco, it's the job of everyone I meet. I think it's integrations and partnership stuff. Do you know what it is? Sales is at a Target. Oh. <laughs> Glad we don't do it. I think that was a good move. Uh, yeah, I don't know because we don't have anyone at our company that does it. Um, we also don't have free trials. We've experimented with them before. They don't work for us. So unlike most software, you don't start out with a free trial. You just pay for the thing and then you buy it. Uh, we also don't have a freemium model. We don't have any kind of free plan. We do not have a sales team at all. There's no salespeople at our company. We don't do any um, outbound or inbound sales. You can email our customer service team, and they're really happy to talk to you, but, but we don't do sales. And none of these things are bad ideas or bad strategies. You know, We've heard about some companies that have grown really huge due to these things. The important part isn't what's on your yes list and what's on your no list, but that you have the yes list and the no list. And you're really strategic about how you're spending your time. On the flip side, the things that we do, we try to blow out as much as possible. So we found that uh, being a guest on podcasts is a great marketing strategy for us. So I do 20 podcasts a month. I have podcast week, one week a month. Our goal is to book four a day for those five weekdays. Um, and all year long, we're looking to book podcasts, quality podcasts with enough listeners. Uh, someone came up to me at lunch today and said, I heard about Meet Edgar on a podcast, and now I'm a customer. So it worked, worked for that one guy, at least, even if it hasn't worked for anyone else. So we have a very clear idea of the things we do and the things that we don't do. And the important part is not to dabble. You know, a lot of people are like, I don't really do partnerships, but you know, my buddy's at this company and it's gonna be really easy to set up and like, we'll just do the one and we'll see how it goes, right? It, it kind of comes back to the initial point of see if there's stuff in your business where your attitude is like, it's probably not gonna work, we'll see how it goes. Why don't you just do the stuff that you're like, that's probably gonna work. That's the stuff that I would rather do. The stuff that I'm like, feel pretty good about that one, probably gonna work. At some point, maybe you exhaust, I guess you do, right? You exhaust all those things that are probably gonna work and, and then you can move on to like, I don't know, maybe it won't work, but. We'll see. Another point about uh, marketing in particular, organic is slow and paid is fast. I mean, paid can be instant. So another thing we did when we launched is we spent a lot of money on paid acquisition right from the beginning. I actually uh, looked up our old P&L for this presentation to see how much we were spending on Facebook ads in the beginning. We were spending $40,000 a month on Facebook ads when we launched. I looked back at that and I was like, I was crazy, like what was I doing? Uh, but it actually was a good idea because Facebook ads are a way to get customers in instantly. And especially in the beginning, they're very low hanging fruit. So what we did with Facebook ads in the beginning is we advertised to people that use competitor tools. The messaging was, here's a new social media tool. It, that was pretty much it. Because if you use social media tools, you're interested in the space, you like to go check out when there's new tools. Uh, you're not gonna be able to keep scaling that up forever. You can't just now spend 500,000 a month saying here's a new social media tool, you know, it gets more expensive, the audience runs out. But in the beginning, uh, 
you can do that. And, and this goes back to why you want to have some basic marketing in place. You, know, you want to be collecting email addresses. You want to have a way to follow up with people so that you can run Facebook ads. It doesn't have to be perfectly optimized, but you know, OK, at least I'm getting leads, trials, whatever it is for you, even if I'm not getting customers. So my point of view is you want to start with a lot of paid and a little organic, because organic, and by organic I mean uh, blogging, social media, SEO, that stuff takes time to drive a lot of traffic to your site. You have to do it for a while. So at this point, two and a half years down the road, uh, we get most of our customers from search. We get the vast majority of our customers from organic channels. We still do paid, but it's not as important, which is exactly how I think it should be. But it, it's taken us two years to get to that point, and obviously, uh, if we do things right, our organic traffic will continue to grow over time. So I'm very uh, proud of this little series of pie charts. So the blue is Meet Edgar, the purple is LKR. We, we went from, uh, in 2014, about 90% of our revenue being from LKR. This year, 2016, zero. All Edgar. No more LKR, I'm only software. Uh, and to date, in September 2016, we're at 3.5 million annual recurring revenue. Uh, but I think my kind of parting thoughts are make a plan, not an experiment. So, oh, that's okay. I know what I want to say. <laughs> um, so you don't, you don't want to go into things thinking, I don't know, I'm just going to launch this, I'm going to see what happens, I'm going to do a partner, I'm going to see what happens, we're going to release all these new features, we're going to see what happens. The truth is you don't know what's going to happen. You have no way of predicting what's going to work and what's not going to work. The least you can do is try to predict, make a plan, and follow it through. And this is the only way to make sure that you're not spending your time on a bunch of haphazard things that don't all really coordinate, don't all really add up. The plan does not have to be a, comp a complicated plan. It can be a list. It can be a Google Doc. But think through the strategies that you're executing, and also think through what the outcomes might be. Right? OK, if I do this partnership, I'm taking a wild stab, but do I expect to get five customers or do I expect to get 500? Okay, if I expect to get five, is there easier things or less costly things I can do in my time to get that less five, to get that five customers? Same with 500, right? Is this the best way to get 500 customers? And don't let your past limit your future. Uh, three years ago, I had never done software. Like I said, in any capacity, I never worked in software. Now I'm the CEO of a software business, and it's fun, and I love it, and, and we're doing pretty well. You know, you have your whole life. It's OK to change careers. It's OK to decide that you don't like what you're working on. It's OK to do something totally new. Don't let your past limit your future. Don't get stuck just because you decided to do something years ago. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.